Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. Sprogcast is back for episode 18. We're talking about cesarean birth with Claire Goggin. We're looking at some of the things that have been in the news and catching up after summer holidays. Uh, I'm Mark Harris and here is Karen Hall. Hi Mark, how are you? I'm good. I, I, a little bit jaded, if I'm honest. It's been a busy time. I was at the fabulous launch of Rebecca Schiller's book, Why Human Rights in Childbirth Matter, on Thursday night. And then I was at Millie Hill's, oh, it was a fantastic conference, uh, the Positive Birth Movement Conference, Be the Change. That was extraordinary. And then I did a two and a half hour workshop in Milton Keynes on the way home so I'm, I'm feeling a little bit jaded what about you? Blimey that does sound tiring I, yeah. I would have loved to go to the positive birth conference it just sounded amazing but we had a, a weekend away so it wasn't possible That's nice, yeah it was nice I'm just sort of ramping up again back into work after the holidays um, I've got a, a doula client and um, all the usual stuff going on wow a, a doula client postnatal ah cool I did get asked for a birth, but I don't want to, I don't, it's just too hard. <laughs> too hard? Just, what, the on-call? The on-call is just impossible to manage because I have so many other little jobs. Yeah, no, it's, to... it, I remember when I first qualified uh, on the back of changing childbirth report, we had a caseload bearing scheme. And um, so when I was not working, my partner was working. So it was, you know, 100% continuity pretty much. Yeah. And it led to 122 hours on call a week. Whoa. It turned me into a binge drinker. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I get it. Yeah. And also, um, the one birth I did was so good. Ooh. Not sure I want to do another one in case it's not as good as that one. Yeah. Good in what way, Karen? Oh, it just it was just textbook. Everything happened as, as it should happen. You know, it just gently panned out and the the mum was just transcendent she was brilliant she was just totally in the zone and everything just trickled along and it was really lovely i, su- I suppose it was textbook depending on which one you're reading right well, of course i wasn't reading anything from who is it the royal college of gynecologists that's for sure <laughs> isn't it funny how in our language all these words and i know exactly what you mean it was good it was textbook it was how, in an ina may kind of way and, and it was how it should have been yeah it's funny at the conference we were we were talking about being the change and i spoke about transforming birthing culture and uh you know you know my uh catchphrase uh, believe nothing test everything mm-hmm. and expand kind of expanding on that and and saying that when we uh, come to a, a decision about what the truth is in terms of the evidence it's not long before that morphs into a superstition in our behaviors mm-hmm. and how in the birth world those of us that have been it for any length of time know that, that there are so many areas where superstition reigns Mm-hmm. Because you know this is what we've always done. I've I've never tested my belief in this so-called evidence to the point where uh, I'm able to see clearly again. Yeah, and absolutely, it, it may well be the case that the doulas are at births that that don't go as um, straightforward and undisturbed as that one, uh, and 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 they might feel that's 
the still the right place to be and it, it, it was a kind of it happened as it it should be expected to happen yeah. and that that could be an equally positive experience i'm yeah. just saying for me oh, i that, know that was I'm just a, hey, uh, hey i'm doing the interviewer thing yeah I'm, yeah, I'm answering your question. <laughs> I was being penetrating. Oh dear, that's probably not the right word. No, I don't think so. <laughs> no. Anyway. So, um, would you like to read out the the sponsor mention? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. This broadcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition, and yoga. And you'll find them at Pinter and Martin. Dot com. Uh, we're on Facebook as well, by the way, facebook.com slash Sprogcast. And as we say every week, Karen, we want people to get in touch with us. We want you to share it if you like it. And uh, we'd love to increase the amount of people that get to listen uh, to the show each month. That's absolutely right. And we've also, um, this is the first time we've had a conversation um, at least a recorded conversation since Sprogcast Live back in July, um, which was a really just fabulous event. Highlight of the night possibly was um, the bit where you made Katie Edwards write a poem in 10 minutes, and she did. Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> that was amazing. Uh, but the stories, the speakers, the audience, it was all just lovely. It was another perfect experience that went exactly as it should have. Yeah. Even though we were making it up as we went along, right? We were a bit, weren't we? And we'd like to do that. I think again, we should we should we go on tour? We maybe do another couple of of broadcast lives um, in 2017. So if you can host us, please get in touch, Facebook and Twitter, as always. Um, and we we can bring it to you, and I'm sure we can find some more um, people to come and talk. And yeah, Karen, I, I think we pretty much decided that the uh, the very next one will be at Pinter and Martin again maybe midway through next year right okay no all right <laughs> that's a decision that's super sounds like me right, see you sounds then. Like i've decided karen <laughs> <laughs> we had some really lovely um reactions on facebook and twitter as well once i edited and it together and we published it in august which i would have thought would be a kind of month when nobody had time to listen anyway but we still got the usual number of listeners um so on facebook zoe crossley woodman said loved it the poems were fantastic again find myself shouting out loud listening to it in agreement felt more emotional live for some reason keep up the fantastic work and amy brown replied presumably to the bit about how it felt more emotional that might be the wine and it's true, yeah, true. all the photos of amy she is holding a glass I, of wine I, I never saw her without a glass in her hand. No, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had some people on Twitter. Um, Kay Hodgkin says, just listened to Sprogcast Live and thoroughly enjoyed engaging positive discussion, rebirth and breastfeeding. Uh, Maddie, been totally gripped this morning listening to the latest Sprogcast, which was recorded live at Efraspace. Um, I just say Maddie as if everyone will now know that that's Maddie McMahon. Um, Emma Rosen, um, just listen to Birthright's story on live podcast in bits. How do I teach for the morning? Inspiring. And she added another tweet later that said, I love the bit about when you heal from a negative experience and that transcends into helping others. Beautiful. Lizzie Jane spent my afternoon really getting down to sorting out my room and listening to Sprogcast. So excited for student midwife life to begin. So that's a nice one, isn't it? 
I yeah. asked her if she'd like to speak to us sometime, and she said yes. Oh, brilliant. Um, now that our Natalie is uh, qualified. Uh, she's the real deal. She is. She's got a uniform and everything. Um, last comment on Sprogcast Live was from Alison White at Manor Mindful. Um, finally got around to listening to this live episode. Hashtag awesome. Hashtag undisturbed birth. Hashtag breastfeeding. I'm just getting to grips with hashtags. Are you? It's my age, Karen. Yeah, I know. That was a lot of interaction last last episode. Well, it was the live thing. So, yeah, we should definitely do that again. Rocking. And next time, we'll do our best to live stream it. Yes. And who who will we get? Send us some suggestions. Who could talk or, or volunteer if you want to come and speak and you've got something interesting to say. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that, that Dennis Walsh will come. That would be nice. For our next one. That would be good. I'd like to meet Dennis. Yeah, he's cool. Yeah, I'm seeing him for a beer on Wednesday, actually. Well, I know you meet him every week, but I'd I, like to meet him. Yeah, no, he's cool. He's cool. I, I wonder who else we could get. So please uh, make suggestions. In fact, people have suggested before, haven't they, really? Yeah, well, we have suggestions and we, we do take account and we make it and we add them to the list and um, we listen to what people want to do and we try and do it. Absolutely. Well. Let's have a look at this news. One of the articles that, that grabbed my attention, because we've covered it before, was the impact of estimate, estimated growth rates of baby through ultrasound on cesarean section rates. Yeah. It's written by Sarah Wickham, who we'd love to get on the show uh, if her workload slowed down long enough so that she could do it. it it's brilliantly well written and, and points to quite significant percentage differences when it comes to cesarean birth uh, in relationship to uh, to estimation of weight i think the highest uh, percentage of cesarean section was about 18.4 uh, i haven't got it in front of me at the moment uh, and that was uh, when women had a a high weight uh, of baby predicted based on ultrasound then i think the next stat is about 16 percent, and that's when it's, before you make up any more numbers oh, um ah! The first one was 18.5. The next one is 13.4% of yeah, women who had their baby's weight estimated clinically. What does that mean? That the, the... Palpa- Palpation. Right. So that's uh, a midwife has palpated uh, and said the baby's big. And, of course, in the um, call the midwife days, it would have been the same midwife palpating throughout the pregnancy. Yeah. So, so there would be more... Uh, more of a correlation with what was going on than probably happens to today. But yeah. still, the difference between the ultrasound uh, and the clinical palpation was quite significant. But I think the, that the important point was that they were documented in their notes. So it was it was made a deal of. Go on, carry on. What's, what's the last figure? The last figure is 11.7% of women. And these are the ones whose baby's weight was not estimated or documented. So 11.7% of those women... Um, had a cesarean so it's quite a lot lower than the 18 and a half percent and straight away in my mind it, it kind of points to um largely unconscious i would i would hazard a guess but the largely unconscious tendency to grant technology 
more authority than the hands of a midwife or, or even a doctor for that that matter. Do you know what I mean? The, the idea that it's it's an ultrasound, therefore it's more likely that my baby's going to be bigger, or certainly in the mind of the doctor, it's an ultrasound, so it's more likely to be correct. Yeah, so you've got the, the um, technology um, topping the table there, but you have also got where um, palpation has happened and a midwife or a doctor has said, oh, you've got a baby of above average weight and made a note of it those women are in a more likely to have cesarean group as well and that makes total sense though doesn't it imagine you're a medical practitioner you know with with the women's best interests in heart at heart let's let's assume and i i think that's the the case in the majority of of circumstances and the birthing process isn't going as you'd expect it to go according to your uh, systems of measuring progress and you've got this documented in the notes that there's potentially a large baby you know your threshold for for making a surgical decision is going to be lower and 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 who can not under who, who doesn't sympathize with that well, and also the the parents themselves, if they've been told, sure. oh, you've got a big yeah. baby. Yeah. Yeah. All of these things are having an impact. They're worrying about what that's going to be like. And yeah. the worrying itself is going to be a contributory factor, isn't it? Yeah. Well, certainly, you know, all the stuff we know about how the birthing process uh, unfolds in terms of the hormonal responses. You know, we know that any sense of mulling upon a fearful idea is going to inhibit the flow of oxytocin and, and therefore potentially have an impact. And, and, and I think we've spoken about before that the um, accuracy of ultrasound when judging the weight of the baby towards the end of the pregnancy is is very fallible. Yeah. And I think the later ultrasounds seem to be less accurate. Yeah. Well, well I mean, the last paper I read, and I'm, I may be out of date on this, and I'm sure one of our listeners will update me. Uh, I think it's about a pound and a half variation either way at about 38 weeks, which yeah. is a, a fairly big margin for error. It is, and it can put um, a, a, a sonographer's kind of estimate of a large baby right back into the range of normal and do we have also have evidence suggesting that it is more difficult to give birth to a large baby or is that not the case i'm guessing it depends on on size and and other relative factors but i you know i remember looking after a woman when a rugby world cup was going on uh, i don't know why i remember that <laughs> Yeah, I do. I know. I know. Was it why. on the telly at the time? No, yeah, it was. And Jonah Lumo was making his debut on the world stage, and uh, she gave birth standing up to an eleven-pound, two and a half baby. And I remember her husband going, "He's going to be called Jonah." <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <why>. <laughs> do you think there's a correlation between watching rugby and having a big baby? I don't think. So. I don't think so. But I think there is a correlation between ability. <laughs> between uh, you, you know we know that a supported squat potentially increases the pelvic outlet by about 18 percent you know it's not a static bone-like it is a bone-like structure but it becomes you know very flexible with the impact yeah. of relaxing so her just standing up and I remember the head seemed to be coming for ages <laughs> have you and, seen the ketchup bottle mem that's going around in birth world no. There's an image of a ketchup bottle lying down with the lid off and it's saying if you want the ketchup to come out, you don't lie the bottle on its side or on its back. 
I like that. Yeah, but if you follow it through, you you then you hold it upside down and you slap it, don't you? So I'm not really sure that's <laughs> the best analogy. I'm not sure I would use it. So this is the article by Sarah Wickham on her own blog, sarahwickham.com, that we've been talking about. And she does helpfully um, summarize the research and then provide the abstracts if you wish to read it. We've linked it on our Facebook page. Yeah, And Sarah, if you're listening, please come and talk to us on the show. If she's your friend, pressure her. her. Yes. <laughs> right, moving on. Would you like to talk about breastfeeding or would you like to talk well, you, about... You go. I started the last I one. Can, I can talk about where you started it. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So I noticed over the last week or so, um, perhaps this has got something to do with Amy Brown's book about to come out. Um, yeah. So Amy kindly came and spoke at Spodcast Live and is Pinter and Martin author. Um, yeah. And her book Breastfeeding Uncovered is coming soon, next few days, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our copy. And I've just linked an article in the Guardian entitled Low UK Breastfeeding Rates Down to Social Pressures Over Routine and Sleep by Nicola Davis. Yeah. And it, so it's a good article because it's got lots of contributions from various sources, including Rebecca Schiller, somebody else who was at uh, yeah. our broadcast live event. And um, it's commenting on the, the basically the pressure for um, babies to conform and behave in certain ways and, and the lack of support for breastfeeding being kind of very significant in the short term of breastfeeding in the UK. Yeah, what, particularly focusing on sleep? Um, particularly fo focusing on an expectation that good babies sleep. And actually yeah. had um, there was another comment on Twitter from a friend of mine, Claire McCowlin. Claire just remarked on Twitter, a friend of a colleague recently reported to say he would win the war over sleep patterns regarding his one-week-old baby. God. But she also pointed out that, you know, everyone's first question is about whether a baby sleeps through. Yeah. I s struggle to understand uh, some of these emphases that we see in the birth world, because I think it's pretty much accepted that we are an animal, mm -hmm. that human beings are animals. You know, in the ancient tradition of being mammals over millions and millions and millions of years, this, this idea that somehow a baby isn't intuitively responding to those forces in the early days bemuses me. But some it, baby mammals do sleep, don't they? What about baby rabbits? They sleep while their parents go off foraging. I don't know anything about rabbits, Karen. <laughs> I don't know a great deal about I, rabbits. I, 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 know, I know they're very fertile. <laughs> well, I remember um, reading about <laughs> the um, the difference between mammals who leave their babies to go off and forage and mammals who take their babies with them, that the milk composition is different. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and, and sleep cycles and feeding patterns are therefore different. Yeah, and you couldn't risk leaving an awake baby to go off and forage. So it's necessary for those babies to sleep, whereas humans and other carrying mammals need to take their baby with them. Because right. it's you... known that those babies aren't going to stay asleep and stay where they are and be completely safe in a nest. I know, I get that. I, that's interesting. That's interesting. In your experience, though, Karen supporting a, a lot of breastfeeding women uh, over the years in the first 72 hours babies sleep patterns are different to what they seem to 
become after that period of time. Is that fair to say? I have come across that, but I'm not a research study, so I can only say anecdotally, yes, I've come across that, but I've also come across babies that haven't been like that. Yeah, true, true. Okay, now I get that. So an interesting article. Another example of how um, when you live inside a culture, you know, whatever that culture is, whether it's a family culture, a, a national culture, is that the, the, the values, the influences of that culture become almost completely unseen while you're in them. Mm. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think there was a philosopher that called it the cultural habitus. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing about that, of course, is that you and I exist in a cultural habitat where um, we do know that babies need to wake up a lot. And we yeah. we do understand what what a baby's needs are, and we do have a, a good feel for um, what supports breastfeeding. But our wider cultural context is the opposite of that. Yeah, and, and there are forces. Uh, we do speak about this a lot, Karen. But there are there are forces outside of that that add their additional uh, pressures. You know, like economic forces. Yeah, Amy mentions that, um, and it comes out in this article. Yeah, Brown criticizes aggressive advertising by formula companies and negative public perceptions of breastfeeding that have seen women asked to cover up when feeding their baby. Yeah. Um, and, and that's one of the things that, that, that comes up a lot, obviously, in antenatal classes. Um, the perception that it's very common to be asked to cover up. And I point out that it's only in the newspapers because it's news. And if it was happening every day, it wouldn't be. Yeah. But it is so unhelpful to have these articles, Facebook yeah. and what have you, saying this happened. On the one hand, yes, you need to call it out. But on the other hand, yeah. it makes it seem to women that this, this is inevitably going to happen to them. Yeah. Yeah. Would you like to talk about this article from the BBC News about making babies without eggs? I, 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 I don't know what to make of that at all. Apart from the... the, the, the the, the kind of undercurrent that, that I might have made up, it seems like men um, struggling with the power of women to birth, you know, the source of, of mankind in many ways, you know, the, the bringer of human beings into the world and, and, and saying to themselves, look, how can, how can we possibly exclude women from this process? Just don't get it, Karen. It's what, what, such a strange you... thing to do, isn't it? So um, Dr. Tony Perry, we'll assume that's not short for Antonia. Um, <laughs> that was my thought as well. <laughs> seems to think that it's possible that in the distant future, it might be possible to um, for two men to have a child with one donating an ordinary cell and the other sperm. So it's basically using your own cells um, or one man could have his own child using his own cells and sperm. Um, which sounds fairly incestuous and um, would be a taboo if you were talking about that within a family. Um, but apparently it's okay for an individual. This was, of course, research on mice. Yeah. Um, and doesn't really tell us an awful lot about what could actually happen with humans. Um, well, you were making correlations with rabbits earlier, Karen. <laughs> yeah, to, in, in order to demonstrate that humans are not rabbits. There was more extrapolation in the article, weren't there, than, than there was much you could say was on the verge. <laughs> yeah. Um, it seems like sort of sci-fi, crazy, speculative nonsense to me. And uh, my colleague and friend, Maura Clark, 
wrote on Facebook. But as John Cleese says in Life of Brian, where's the fetus going to gestate? In a box? Uh, yeah, excellent. That's a good comment. Good comment. <laughs> it, it, you know, if you, if you look down history, aeons of history, you know, when the, the masculine is, is confronted with the power of the feminine, you know, there, there seems to be at least two responses to that. You know, one is to seek some way to control the power of the feminine and, and the other way is just to worship the feminine. Mm-hmm. And certainly in my career as midwife, the, the worshipping of the feminine, her power, her majesty, her, her intrinsic ability to birth has served me well. And in my relationship, it has to be said. Yeah, good. Well said. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I just think it's it's just, you know, if, if this um, if the next um, logical stage of this was to discuss how men would then spend nine months gestating a baby <laughs> and then birth the baby and then feed the baby, that would be a very interesting turnaround in the way that motherhood is is valued in society, wouldn't it? But that conversation yeah. doesn't seem to be happening. No. So for this episode, we particularly wanted to talk about cesarean birth. And we've got an interview coming up now with Claire Goggin, who um, curates the Facebook group Cesarean in Focus. It's a really interesting read, particularly if you want to look for cesarean birth stories, um, positive stories, as well as some not positive stories and people's strong feelings about their experience. Um, So we'll have a listen to Claire. Well, I'm Claire Goggin, and I am the mother of two sons who were born by emergency caesarean section, and I am the founder of Caesarean in Focus, which is a change platform that is aiming to transform caesarean birth experience for women in the NHS. Okay, and where where can people find Caesarean in Focus? Um, We are on Twitter. Um, Our handle is at C-Section in Focus. Um, And we also have a Facebook group, which I can send you the link for. Um, I can't remember the exact link off the top of my head, but if someone searches for Caesarean in Focus, they'll find it. Okay, brilliant. So why does um, Caesarean birth need to be transformed? Um, I think it's an area of birth that hasn't always had a huge amount of focus put on it. Understand, for understandable reasons, I think there's been a great push to try to transform vaginal birth and make it much more woman-centred. And more recently, there, have, there has been lots of work happening to look at ways in which cesarean birth can also benefit from some of those ideas around normality um, and make it less about clinical surgical practices and more about being a life-affirming rite of passage for women so that they actually get to experience the moment of birth in not necessarily to the same degree as you would if you had um, a straightforward vaginal birth but definitely much more than you would under a traditional um, traditional cesarean procedure so I think there's lots of things regarding cesarean the outcomes for cesarean birth generally tend to be worse Um, there's a greater propensity towards postnatal depression afterwards, Um, women struggle much more with breastfeeding and they often have um, almost post-traumatic stress disorder after, particularly if they've had long attempted vaginal births before they've gone into surgery. So I think what, I mean, there's different terms for it. You can call it a natural caesarean. That was the original paper in the um, the the obstetrics and gynae journal called it a natural caesarean. But I know that a lot of people find that quite 
um, difficult as a word because it is still a surgical procedure. But um, I prefer the term gentle cesarean, um, where really it just puts the woman in the centre of the process and enables her experience of that birth to be something that's really important to everyone who is caring for her as she delivers her baby. So it's very much about making it much more um, woman-centred and um, hopefully then more of a a positive experience in meeting their babies going through the birth. How how can that be done? Um, I think there are three key elements to a gentle caesarean. I think the first one is that there is greater parental involvement in the birth. So, and it varies according to what the family wants because different people, and particularly for people who are having their first cesarean, things like the lowering of the drape may be a bit overwhelming to them. They may be worried. I know that I would have been um, when I had my first cesarean worried about what you'd see and whether that would be a kind of traumatic thing to see that. It, it, it wasn't and isn't, and I would definitely encourage people to, um, to try to experience that, but it, it varies according to what each family likes but definitely parental involvement so that could be lowering the drape it could be being able to take pictures of the baby being born and that's something that had in my second cesarean I although it was still an emergency because I had a birth plan um for my cesarean my midwife advocated for me in theatre and we were able to get elements of of a gentle cesarean in my birth and the photos are just I keep looking at them it's those moments that because you're when you're swept up in surgery you just you don't really take it in fully but you can kind of see that moment um when you look back on it in the future and it's really powerful other things are around particularly for elective cesareans um, women may choose what kind of playlist they want thinking what kind of mood or things they want to listen to while they're being prepared for um surgery and having the lights dimmed and things like that so that it's much more intimate and much less about you know bright lights and everything being scary so parental involvement is the, the one of the main key elements the second key element is slowing down the birth um this is where you know the baby is able to once once they've kind of um opened opened up the incision allowing the baby to kind of move out um on its own and be kind of facilitated rather than delivered so it's not a sudden you know being hoiked out into the world it kind of mimics a little bit more the um, vaginal birth and allows the contractions of the womb to push the baby out and it helps to clear the airways of the baby and gives them more time for the the core to pulsate and they get much more um, benefit from the blood in the placenta as well so that's the second element Mm -hmm. and the third element which for me was the you know the absolute most amazing part of having a gentle cesarean is the fact that you get the immediate skin to skin and the immediate skin to skin just enables you to have that have that experience with your baby while you're still in theatre in my first birth the baby was um, taken away cleaned washed and dressed and taken to the recovery um, recovery ward by my husband while I was still being stitched up so it was probably maybe half an hour or so after he was born that I kind of met him whereas in my second birth he was with me the whole time while we were while we were in theatre and it was only maybe for a couple of minutes while they were literally moving me off the table onto the trolley that my baby wasn't with me and it was just so powerful and such a um, much different much different experience and you kind of get the opportunity to really connect with your baby and not think oh okay that suddenly you're giving me this baby that 
I don't really connect to what's just happened to me, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, um, so the three elements are parental involvement in the birth, slowing it down and letting um, the baby emerge more on its own and giving immediate and prolonged skin-to-skin in theatre for mother and baby. Right. So, And if you could only have one of those, it would be the skin-to-skin. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you'd ideally want all, all oh, yeah. three. But yeah, I think um, the immediate skin-to-skin is just, I think it, it, it sets all of, all of the hormones in birth that you hear so much about when you're preparing for a positive birth. It sets all of those hormones off. It helps you to connect the fact that you've just had a baby to um, the baby that you're holding. I think part of the some of the issues that women have around cesarean is that they they're kind of not connected and that they're they're there, they're present, but they're also swept up in the process of surgery, so they don't always get that opportunity to kind of connect the moment of birth to the fact that they they've become a mother. And that process, that moment is delayed, whether it's a few hours later or sometimes a few weeks or months later, when they actually finally get that kind of real sense that they have that you know moment of birth really, where they kind of really connect with their baby. And I think the more you can allow that to happen as soon as possible, the easier I think the, the subsequent recovery will be for women mm-hmm. um, because they'll have had that moment and they'll be feeling much, many more hormones and much more happy after their birth. And there's, of course, there's ample research supporting the benefits of having skin to skin as soon as possible. Yeah. Whatever yeah. kind of birth you have. So that's well evidenced. Yeah. I mean, I think the gentle cesarean isn't really anything new in the sense of the pro that what, what you actually do I think it's just involving in, the new thing is bringing that into the cesarean experience and um, it builds on all of the best evidence in terms of what makes a good um good birth in general really and there's definitely nothing to suggest that there's any negative outcomes associated with a gentle cesarean obviously it depends on the clinical circumstances if you're in a crash section for example it's not possible but there are still things in any type of cesarean birth that you can do to kind of make that much more woman-centered and it's just changing the mindset really to think how can we make this um, the most positive birth experience for this particular family and looking at how that can be achieved for them. Do you find that there is much resistance to changing the mindset from the kind of point of view of the clinical staff? There can be. I mean, when, in my own personal experience, I tried to negotiate my a gentle cesarean as part, because I was wanting to have a, um, a vaginal birth after cesarean, a VBAC. Um, but as my kind of plan B, I wanted to negotiate like, uh, the cesarean. I sent them the, the, the original paper from the um, British Journal for Obstetrics and Gynecology, and they were just saying, no, we don't do this in our trust. It's too complicated to... Um, to agree it we need to involve too many people in reality on the day they were much more open to it I think it depends on who you get because some obstetricians are more open to it some midwives are more open to it and some anaesthetists are more open to it I think though there's increasingly a lot more positivity towards it it's definitely starting to gain traction I think it takes time for everyone to hear about new te- new techniques and new methodologies and there's a randomized control trial that's going on at the moment think it's UCH that's doing it and they once we get start to get the evidence base behind it I think it will start to kind of feed through into things like nice guidelines and will become more mainstream but it's definitely something that there's no reason I don't think why women should be refused it 
This, it doesn't sound complicated. It, it's just, I think it's just people feeling comfortable actually doing things differently, really. And I think if a, if a woman has any issues trying to negotiate it, I think speaking to a supervisor of midwives is really key because they can really help advocate for you. And just asking them why it is that they're hesitant about it and trying to understand what their um, issues. I think sometimes people think that because it's a cesarean, you need to do everything really quickly because it's really, really dangerous. But actually, when you listen to the obstetricians who do it, they're like, well, actually, you know, there might be some bleeding, but you can you can stop the bleeding. You can kind of keep everything under control. It's not really, I think it's just a different way of working and it takes time for people, everyone to come round and, you know, get on board really. But from all the women I've spoken to who've had one, it's such a transforming experience for them, particularly women who've had cesareans previously who've had possibly traumatic experiences and found things really difficult most of the women I've spoken to say that it's really healing for them it's not only a positive experience but it kind of heals the previous birth trauma that they might have had because they finally even if they are kind of resigned to the idea that they may never have the kind of dream um, straightforward vaginal birth that they may have wanted they get to have a beautiful birth and have that real woman-centered birth that they really want they really really want and they get to experience experience a much more positive birth so it really seems to help heal previous birth trauma in women do you find that it is mostly people who've had a previous cesarean who are wanting to do this um i think i mean most of the people i've spoken to i don't think i've spoken to anyone who is a first-time mum who's you know thinking about it off the bat I think it's really I mean there's a common perception in the media that there is lots of women who want a cesarean and actually in reality it's really really low numbers I think it's like two percent of the the total births are women who actually request a cesarean you know that that's the only reason that they want one I think it's something I really think it's something that we should talk to women about when they're having their first baby as one of the options so so that they know that they can think about what it what they would want if that was the path that happens for them so they can think well actually I'd really like um to to have the drape lowered so it's not when you're like say for a first-time mum who is in theatre in an emergency cesarean and someone says would you want me to lower the drape I wouldn't want that to be the first time that's been suggested because it might freak them out and but if they've had someone talk about different, you know, different things in antenatal classes and things about what could happen and how every kind of birth can be positive, then they might be able to make more, more of a, um, more of a positive experience out of any cesarean that may happen for them. But I don't think generally it's something that women are, you know, seeking out first time round. It's usually either they've had uh, instrumental birth first time round where they're worried about things like their pelvic floor and prolapse I see quite a lot of people um, wanting a cesarean for those reasons or they've had maybe one or two cesareans and you know cesarean birth after cesarean where they're just maybe not confident they want to go to try again um, and they want to kind of feel maybe a little bit more in control over what happens and able to you know be, be, be sure of a positive experience and I think that's that's kind of what it enables you to do although obviously any birth is unpredictable and even a cesarean can have complications so there's no no absolute guarantee in any type of birth but it does give women a bit more ability to have a bit of control over their birth when yeah. 
have had previous experiences of that not going so well for them. I, th- I think it's something that a lot of the people listening will have heard about, mm. but it's good to hear those sorts of details and how midwives can support women um, if it's something that they want to do in their practice and also to be able to give them ways of finding out more about it so that's that's so helpful thank you it's it's exactly the same um, philosophy behind it as there is behind all of the advocacy for more women-centered vaginal birth it's about placing the woman at the centre of birth and and really caring about how she experiences her birth and yeah. ensuring that birth experience isn't tied to birth outcome and you can have positive birth experiences regardless of the mode of delivery that you end up needing or wanting because of clinical circumstances. Okay, thank you very much. Brilliant. Okay then. It's great to talk to you, Claire. All right, thanks very much. Go and enjoy your holiday. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> Oh, that was that was interesting, Karen. Uh, Claire Claire spoke at the Positive um, Birth Movement conference, and a lot of people found her talk uh, really insightful and interesting. That there, there definitely is a groundswell out there uh, towards uh, gentle cesarean section, or whatever we're deciding to call it. Yes, we're, we're I think generally deciding not to use the word section. Oh, how how do you feel about that? I'm not. I'm not bothered. I, I like the idea of not using it. Don't forget, I, I come from twenty odd years of midwifery experience where cesarean and section went hand in hand. You know, because because of where the incision is, mm-hmm. you know, and all that kind of stuff. No, I think it's good. In fact, I was only thinking the other day that you know, if if language is at the heart of beginning to shift the culture. Paying attention to the words we use is of fundamental importance and eradicating birth language as far as possible from any Latin derivative or any medical uh, jargonese has got to be a good first step. Mm. So I'm, I'm for it. Yeah, I'm just fascinated that um, if, if somebody has, has um, with such a good understanding of the importance of language as you, you still find it very hard not to say section. Um, yeah. And I'm not, this is not as a criticism. I'm just s- sort of exploring the fact that it's hard for you not to say section. It it must be really, really hard for um, the people dealing with it on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it, it becomes, and my midwifery colleagues that are working in, in the NHS, um, I can understand them feeling it's almost a poss- uh, an impossibility. So do you think you this know, is kind of Orwellian sort of newspeak? You, it's impossible to think a heretical thought because we don't have the language for it. If we don't say section, does that make a difference to women's experience? I'm not sure it does. When we begin the process, you know, th- these processes of shifting cultures that have such a history, will it will it will take a while. But even 20 years ago, when a group I was in decided to wipe delivery off the board and write birth, mm-hmm. you know, that was considered ridiculous. And, and what, what was the result of that? It certainly had an impact on the small group of people that were pursuing it. And it certainly gave pause for thought to those that thought it was ridiculous. Did it have an impact on that culture over time? I, I don't know. You know, as I look at birthing cultures over the last 20 years, I see change, but I don't see transformation. But I do think that language, uh, it, it's what separates us from other mammals for a start. 
it's potential. It, I think it has the potentiality to. It's almost the source code for creating different experiences. I, I, but your point is a good one. You see, I was immersed within those structures and cultures for many, many years. So at a deeply unconscious level, section, yeah. section comes out. And so that's what it's, that that's the culture, isn't it? Yeah. And like you say, I have a certain amount of awareness, uh, but it, it, it obviously is still a default for me. Hmm. I like how Claire broke it down into um, kind of three ways that you could make a cesarean birth into a gentle experience, a more parent-centered experience. So involving the parents in the decision-making, um, slowing everything down and having that immediate yeah. skin to skin. My, my problem with any labels that we put on any of these things, gentle, uh, you know, gentle, uh, the reverse of gentle is what? Rough. Violent. If we label this uh, way of doing cesarean sections as gentle, it has the embedded assumption that the other option isn't. But some people do find that, don't they? Of course, they, yeah, yeah of course they do. But some people also have a cesarean section the other way that they would label gentle. Yeah, so that's okay. They can label it gentle. It's very much about what, what each person experiences. Yeah, absolutely, but I'm just pointing towards the way our language is our greatest gift mm. but it's also our, our greatest shackling we have a, a great potential to shackle ourselves through language as well as liberating ourselves yeah. but it would be a shame if we didn't have any adjectives anymore wouldn't it <laughs> and i love language heidegger said language is the house of being wherein man dwells my whole experience of life is shaped through the words I say to myself and the word that I speak out, out. So it's a gift to us uh, and it's a powerful tool, I think, for bringing about transformation in birth, but it's not without without its challenges. Mm, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I'm Sounds so surprised. No, I love, <laughs> I love the way um, uh, our discussion goes back and forth. This is an argumentative one today, though, isn't it? I like it. No, I like it. <laughs> Let's listen to my conversation with Natalie, which is much less argumentative. So here's Natalie, fully qualified. You've got your, what, what have you got, a pin? I've got my pin number now, yes. Excellent. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Worked very hard to get it. You did. And we're going to need a new student now, aren't we? Well, indeed. I'm no longer... I'm a newly qualified though, so you know, still got its challenges, and uh, the transition to be a midwife, I think, is still a massive hurdle. Yeah, and also you you give us a practical perspective that Mark and I don't necessarily have, so we love that. Yes, I'm there on the ground. So we've been talking to Claire Goggin from Cesarean in Focus, and she was talking about gentle cesarean and what options parents might have um and i guess particularly with a focus more on a planned than a, a an unplanned cesarean birth she was talking about three key elements one being to involve the parents in kind of talking about what their wishes were like music and dim lighting and um, lowering the drape and stuff and the second one was to slow the birth down so not just hoik the baby out were her words. And the third one being immediate skin to skin. And I just wondered if you, as um, somebody who's actually probably been in there and, you know, been part of all of this, if you have any perspective on that, that would be interesting. Well, 
I think um, my perspective on it is that we need to just uh, need to look to make birth more positive, which is what we've been trying to do in all aspects of, you know, intrapartum care. And uh, if these are things that women are wanting, then we need to listen to them. Um, it's really difficult because obviously uh, people have practices um, that they do and they have uh, ideas about what way things should be run, especially in a the theatre. Um, there's that crossover between thinking, you know, this is surgery um, and sometimes the, the ways of doing things, they're very um, stuck in, in doing those. So the things about sort of like the lighting, you know, you know, that's something that I, I've not even even heard a, a woman ask about the lighting in the theatre. Um, music is something that whenever we, I've talked to a woman about having an elective section, you know, I, I do point out that there'll be music there, um, but I've never had them say, you know, well, I want a specific mu music, but then maybe that's because I've not asked them. Um, so, I mean, I think it's all, all about um, talking and, and asking what a woman actually wants in the experience. But again, it's how that is then taken forward because um change is a very, very difficult thing yeah so difficult i guess for clinical staff but also for parents when you're talking about their perception of what to expect so i had a, an antenatal group first timers last night um including one couple who are having a planned cesarean and we talked about this and when i sort of mentioned the possibility of having the drape lowered most of them looked a bit queasy and when I talked about dim lighting they were like no we really want the surgeon to be able to see yeah. <laughs> and they yeah, were very I much kind of no at that point we are handing ourselves over and we just want it to be done by people who can see what they're doing and <laughs> are going to just take control and do it for us yeah I mean there, there's got to be an element of that hasn't there you know there has got to be a a common sense sort of approach in that you know you say you want the surgeon to be able to see um but you know in terms of the drapes and things i i, I sort of get that that you'd want to sort of have a look and see the baby coming out i think that's you know really important you know to, to women when they're having a, a vaginal birth you know they get to see that they yeah. get to see the baby coming out um and, and and the father as well but then you know the sort of you know surgery with all the drapes and you know all the masked up and gowns and everything it, it does seem a little bit strange to want to see it then i don't know why i i still think it's a little bit Ooh, I, I could see why they would be queasy and I mean we do really you know when we're in the theatre we try to sort of you know if the father needs to move around or wants to come around you know sometimes we sort of have to say to him you know you, you need to like look away if you don't want to see that side of things you know um, and most fathers don't really you know want to see that. Mm. I suppose it's about choice again, isn't it? Yeah but then I saw um, obviously did you see the whole um, drapes that were clear? that you could see through the drapes through the whole no, thing. I haven't seen that. Yeah, there's a, a company, a woman, woman uh, has um, developed them. And uh, yeah, and I thought, so well, that, that sounds quite good because obviously you're keeping the sterile field, which again is, you know, very, very important having a, a, a an operation. So you're keeping the sterile field with the drapes up, um, but you can still see what's going on. So that sounds like a good idea. Oh, interesting idea. Yeah. But. Um, and but then it's the it's the thingy of um, you know the the skin to skin and things like that. I think they're the things that we really need to sort of make sure they happen in theatres. That's what we always conclude, whatever we're talking about, isn't it? We're at the end of the conversation, we go, yeah, skin to skin. That's the most important thing. Yeah, it is. But then when you're practically there, and when things are happening, and you know the theatres are, you know, they are cold. They are, you know, and 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 you have theatre staff in there that you know, want to get on with their job, as it were, 
you know, and they're sort of, they do put barriers in the way sometimes for things like that. Yeah. Uh, and they sort of say, oh, we can do it in recovery. You know, we'll, we'll get her through and you can, you can help her in recovery. And, you know, it's, again, it's, it's, it's the midwife that needs to maybe sort of say something, say, well, no, no, this is what the woman wants. Yeah. And this is what she said she wanted to do now, not, not wait until recovery. How strong is your voice in a place like that where there's the surgeon and the anaesthetist and the, the, whoever else is on the team at the time? Exactly. That is it. it you know, who, whose voice is the strongest, you know, and, but then in, in, in the ideal world, it, it's the woman's that should be, mm. you know, it's her choice. It's her, it's her body. It's her, her baby. Um, and she's the one that's going to be doing it. You're, you're not doing it. You're not doing the skin to skin. She is. Yeah. It's, it's a massive change in attitude about it. Yeah. So um, we midwives are hosting a tweet chat um, at, about the gentle cesarean on the 27th of uh, September um, if you're on Twitter you just need to use the hashtag we midwives and just join the conversation and then you just join in so it's, it's we are advertising it a lot on we midwives so if you just check us out you'll be able to find out more about it that's ace thank you very much see you later bye, bye. So what did you think about all of this? It's a hot topic, isn't it, for for everybody in the birth world? Let us know, as usual, on Facebook and Twitter. We should mention our lovely sponsors, Pinter and Martin. And um, one thing that I think we mentioned before is the Birthrights Book Club. Um, In October, they're encouraging people to host a fundraising book club to raise awareness of the importance of um, human rights in childbirth. So I'm hosting one. 19th of October in the afternoon at my house. So if you live local to me, I'm in Berkshire, um, get in touch. You can come. Cool. Also, and I don't know if you've seen it, Mark, but Becky Reed's book, Birth in Focus, has just come yeah, out. Yeah, I've got it. Have you? Isn't it amazing? It's lovely. She She's a, a midwife in the hero class, if you ask me. It's just such a super book. Yeah, it's lovely. It feels good as well, doesn't it? It looks good. Yeah, and I took it along to my um, antenatal course and somebody's actually borrowed it and taken it home, which I, I wasn't sure if it was something people would want to look at because the pictures are graphic. Yeah. And uh, antenatally, I find that quite a lot of parents like to kind of think that it's all going to be covered in sparkly fairy dust and <laughs> there aren't going to be any of those bits exposed. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your endorsement, that book? It can be. Oh, yeah. It doesn't have to be, no. Yeah, no, it, it, it's great. And also, there was something she wrote about in the end. I don't know if you've read the um, the the kind of text at the end, the, the final chapter, where she just looks at some of the evidence and thinking around birth. And she talks about a writing that describes the difference between a, a sanctum and a surveillance environment for giving birth. Right, right. Well, I've only flicked through it so far, but... I'm looking forward to it. Mm. Yeah, go on, go on. That's my endorsement. Everybody should go and get that book. It's on pinterandmartin.com. Um, you can get a 10% discount at the checkout if you use the code SPROGCAST. Right, cool. What's well, yours? Well, mine is a book that I'm just starting, but I, already I think it's a book I want to endorse. It's called The Meme Machine. 
And it does fit in very much with some of the things we've spoken about today. It's by Susan Blackmore. And I'm going to read from the back, if that's okay, Karen. Yeah, go for it. Humans are extraordinary creatures with the unique ability to imitate and so to copy from one another ideas, habits, skills, behaviors, inventions, songs and stories. These are all memes. Uh, A term first coined by Richard Dawkins in his book in 1976, The Selfish Gene. Memes, like genes, are replicators, competing to find space in our minds and cultures. And this enthralling book investigates the consequences, confronting the deepest questions from why human beings have big brains and language to altruism, sex and the Internet. Uh, Susan Blackmore makes a compelling case for the theory that even our inner conscious self and our sense of free will are illusions created by the memes for the sake of their own replication. It's fabulous. In fact, it's it's kind of covering subjects that we've been talking about when it comes to why cultures form and how they maintain themselves so thoroughly recommend it i'm going to be devouring it over the next few days brilliant um i've just put that on our facebook page along with a link for birth in focus so if people want to read what we're reading it's out there yeah Should we mention that we're giving a book of why human rights in childbirth matter? Hopefully, I'm going to get Rebecca to sign a copy for us. Um, You know, this book is pretty spectacular. Although the book itself is worth it, worth the price. I think it's $7.99 at the moment, just for the appendices. So what what do people have to do to... Uh, What do you think? Donate £7 to birth rights. (laughs) Well, that, that that would be a good thing. If you leave us a comment yeah, this month, we will draw you from a hat. Draw you out and I'll send you it. I've got to get Rebecca to sign it first. But cool. And that's all we've got time for for today. On our next episode, we'll be talking birth stories and media with Dr. Rajana Daz. If you have any suggestions or comments, please, please, please get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. That's facebook.com slash sprogcast and at sprogcast on Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, why not leave us a review? Um, and that's thanks for listening from today. Bye. Goodbye from me. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Sprogcast is supported by Pinter and Martin. For all your pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and parenting reading, check out pinterandmartin.com and enter the code SPROGCAST for an additional 10% off. Sprogcast is produced by Karen Hall with technical assistance by Pete Hall and our branding is provided by Nick Hilditch.